Chapter 2 of Manners for Men. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Manners for Men by Mrs. Humphrey. Chapter 2 In the Street. The rule of the road is a simple one, though it is often forgotten or neglected keep to the right easy enough for women it is complicated in the case of men by the necessity of always remaining on the curb side of any lady they may be accompanying should the lady keep to the right in meeting or in passing other persons her escort may either keep by her or go out in the road he will be able to judge for himself which cause will be advisable his first duty is always to his companion that need not make him wanting in courtesy to other women if remaining by the side of his companion should involve any inconvenience to the ladies of the other party then he must give up his position and go out into the roadway to let the latter pass should these be men no consideration is necessary he keeps close by his lady's side in crowded streets he may often have to fall behind but he should never allow any one to interpose between her and him. Should the pressure from the crowd become extreme, his duty is to protect her from it as much as possible, but never by putting his arm round her waist. A hand on either side of the lady's shoulders is usually sufficient. In meeting acquaintances, a nod is sufficient for a male friend, unless his age or position is such as to render it advisable to raise the hat. Should a lady be with the acquaintance, any man meeting them must raise his hat. So must the individual walking with the lady. The etiquette of bowing is a simple one. Male acquaintances always wait for acknowledgement on the part of female, as well as from those men who are their superiors in age or position. But this does not mean that they are shyly to look away from them and to ignore them. On the contrary, they must show clearly by their manner that they are on the lookout for some sign of recognition and are ready to reply to it. Shyness often interferes with this and makes a young man look away, and this is occasionally misconstrued as an indifference and resented as such. The calm, quiet, collected expression of face that suits the occasion is not achieved at once. Sometimes the over-anxiety to make a good impression defeats itself, producing a blushing eagerness better suited to a girlish than a manly countenance. This, however, is a youthful fault that is not without its ingratiating side, though young men view it in themselves and in each other with unbounded scorn. This sentiment of self-contempt is a frequent one in, in young people of both sexes. Their valuation of themselves varies as much as the barometer. It is as much affected by outward causes. After a snub, real or fancied, it goes down to zero, but as a rule it speedily recovers itself, and in most young men enjoys an agreeable thermometer of 85 degrees or so in the shade. The well-mannered man never puts out his hand in greeting until a lady extends hers. This is a test of good breeding that is constantly applied. To those uninitiated in the ways of society, it would naturally appear the right thing to give as cordial a greeting as possible. Therefore the hand is held out, even on introduction to a perfect stranger. This is wrong. 
the first move in the direction of cordiality must come from the lady, the whole code of behaviour being based on the assumption that she is the social superior. The same holds good with elders and men of higher rank. When a man is introduced to these, he raises his hat and bows, though slightly. It is only to kings and princes that a low bow is made, or to those whose character and eminent position render an introduction to them a very high honour. In introducing two men to each other, the name of the inferior is mentioned first. By the inferior, I mean the younger, the less important, or of lower rank. Suppose one of the two to be a familiar friend, and another a comparatively new acquaintance, then formality requires that the familiar friend shall be introduced to the other, being named first. The reason for this is that one naturally stands more on ceremony with the man one knows least. There may be counteracting circumstances, however, which would tend to reverse this order of things, but as a general rule, the social rank of both being equal, the above holds good. Never introduce a lady to a gentleman, but always the gentleman to the lady. That is, mention the man's name first, addressing yourself to the woman, thus, allow me to introduce my friend Mr. Smith, Miss Jones, and follow this up immediately by saying, Miss Jones, addressing Mr. Smith as you do so. It is a grave solecism to begin by introducing the lady. Trials very naturally conclude that the lady's name should be first mentioned, but on thinking it over they will soon perceive that to do so would infer that she is the lesser consideration of the two. It must always be borne in mind that the assumption of women's social superiority lies at the root of these rules of conduct. It is bad manners to introduce people without permission. Nor must this permission be asked in the hearing of the second party. If Mr. A wishes to know Miss B, the lady's leave must be obtained before he can be presented to her. The only exception to this rule is at a dance or ball, where introductions need not be regarded as leading to acquaintanceship. They are only for the dance, and may be ignored next day. Here again it is the lady's privilege to ignore her partner, if she choose. But if she should bow to him, he must raise his hat, whether he desires to follow up the acquaintanceship or not. Objections more frequently arise on the woman's side, but should a man prefer to drop the matter, he can manage to convey in his manner a disinclination to do so, and yet behave with perfect politeness. A man I knew was once introduced at a ball to a girl, with whom he had danced two or three times. Before he met her again, he heard that she had been actively concerned in circulating a slander about another girl, whom circumstances had misrepresented. I happened to see the next meeting between the two. The girl bowed, smiled, and showed some sign of intention to stop and talk. The man raised his hat, looked extremely solemn and unsociable, and passed on. It was enough. The girl understood that he did not wish to resume the ballroom acquaintanceship, and very probably guessed why. He did it beautifully. Before leaving the subject of the promenade, I must clearly explain that the hat must be raised even in saluting a very familiar friend. If A, that friend is accompanied by a lady, and B, when one is oneself accompanied by a lady, even if she be only a mother or sister, it is one of the signs of caste that a man is equally polite to his relatives as he is to the relatives of others.
We all know what to think of a man who omits small social duties where his wife is concerned, even when he proves by paying them duly to other women that he is aware of what he ought to do, he is at once set down as ill-bred, a cad, in fact. I once saw a Lord Mayor of London enter his carriage before his wife, who scrambled in after him as though well accustomed to do so. One does not expect the refinement of good manners and civil dignitaries as a rule, but this little action told the spectators more about the man than they would ever have found out in the newspapers. They at once perceived that he was unversed in the ways of good society. But some may suggest that this may have been on some state occasion, when his mayoral dignity obliged him to precede his wife. No, it was after a wedding. And besides, can any one fancy the Prince of Wales in any circumstances entering his carriage without having previously handed in the princess, should she be his companion? If accompanied by a dog, or dogs, their owner must hold himself responsible for their good behaviour. If his pets trespass in any way, he must apologise for them, and do his best to repair any damage they have done. Should one of his dogs jump on a lady and make her gown muddy, he must offer his services and endeavour to get rid of the traces of the accident. If the lady wishes, should she show a disinclination to accept his aid, he must at once withdraw, raising his hat as he does so. Should his dog attack another dog, he must immediately call him off, administer correction, and apologise to the owner of the dog assaulted. I saw a young man once, in these circumstances, beat the other dog after his own had jumped on it and bitten its ear. He was dressed like a gentleman, but his behaviour gave a truer indication of him than did his garments. Whistling and singing are incompatible with the conduct of a gentleman in the street, though this by no means applies to a quiet country road where ceremonious bearing is not required. Nor is it permitted to wear the hands in the pockets and walking in the park, or the streets of a town or city. This is probably one of the reasons that the cane or stick is still carried, for the original cause, that of self-defence, in an age that was destitute of law and order, fortunately exists no longer. There are men who would not know what to do with their hands if they had not a cane or umbrella. This is partly the fault of those who have charge of boys when they are growing, and who allow them to lounge about in slovenly attitudes with their hands for ever in their pockets. Then, when they begin to enter society, they are quite at a loss. At schools, where boys are regularly drilled, the whole effect of the drilling is done away with by the way in which the boys are allowed to sit and stand in the most remarkable attitudes of slouching awkwardness. It is only when they are at drill or out walking with the masters that any notice is taken of their carriage. And yet it is an important point with regard to health that the sole shoulders should be held well back, the chest forward and the head up. Should a man be so fortunate as to be of some service to any lady in the street, such as picking up a parcel or sunshade she may have dropped, or helping her out of any small difficulty, he must raise his hat and withdraw at once. Such trifling acts as these do not by any means constitute an acquaintanceship, and to remain by her side when the incident is over would look like presuming on what he had done, as though it gave him a right to her continued acknowledgement. This would be ungentlemanly. At the same time, these occurrences are sometimes deliberately planned by girls and women with a direct view to scraping acquaintance with young men. 
it is scarcely necessary to say the girls who stoop to this kind of manoeuvring are hardly ever gentlewomen. Members of good families have been known to do such things in the wild exuberance of youth and high spirits, but they cannot hope to retain the respect of those who know them when they deliberately lower themselves in such ways as these. Picking up promiscuous male acquaintances as a practice fraught with danger, it cannot be denied that girls of the lower middle classes are often prone to it, and there are thousands of young men who have no feminine belongings in the great towns and cities where they live, and who are found responsive to this indiscriminating mode of making acquaintances. But they must often hesitate before choosing as wife a girl who shows so little discretion as to walk and talk with young men of whom she knows nothing beyond what they choose to tell her. The seaside season is prolific in these chance acquaintanceships, flirtations as they may perhaps be called. Bicycling is well known to favour them, but as they are far removed from the practice of the class of society to which belong these gentlemen of whom this little book treats, they may be dismissed with a few words of advice. Should any young man become acquainted with a girl in this manner, let him show his innate chivalry by treating her in every way as he would wish his own sister to be treated in similar circumstances. If he becomes attached to her, let him first find out all about her that he possibly can, and should what he hears be encouraging, then let him ask her to introduce him to her family as a suitor for her hand. Should the girl fall in love with him, let him protect her against herself like a pure chevalier, like an honourable and high-minded English gentleman. If he feels that he cannot reciprocate her sentiment, he should give up seeing her. Should she, as some girls of the kind have been known to do, pursue him with letters making appointments, she makes his task of remuneration a difficult one, but he should fulfil it nevertheless. It is difficult in this way. Suppose a girl writes to a young man, meet me at the tea rooms, number 440 Bond Street, tomorrow afternoon. There is no chance of replying in time to prevent her going there, and to absent himself would be to administer a severe snub to a girl whom he likes very well, and who has flattered his self-love in many ways during their acquaintanceship. What can he do? It is a point he must decide for himself, taking all the circumstances into consideration, and not forgetting to regard her ultimate welfare in the matter, at least as much as his own actual wishes. This may seem to some young men a very high faulting view to take of such a small matter in meeting a young woman and having tea together. Most of them, finding that a girl was growing fond of them, would encourage the feeling by every means in their power, regardless of whether it could ever end in marriage, and careless of everything beyond the gratification of their own vanity. But there are bright exceptions to those who do not allow themselves to be carried away by the flattery implied in a girl's attentions and who can consider her welfare in selfless fashion. Sometimes fastidious taste comes to their aid, and makes withdrawal from an interesting companionship comparatively easy, for after all the manly young man has a prejudice in favour of doing his own wooing. It is not at all necessary that a man should accept invitations from a girl to meet her at restaurants, subscription dances, bazaars or any other place. If a girl so far forgets herself and is so lacking in modesty and propriety as to make appointments with young men in such ways as these, she cannot be worth much, 
and may lead the young man into a very serious scrape. A public horse-whipping is an extremely disagreeable thing, and yet cases have been known where such have been administered by irate brothers or fathers, when the only fault committed by the young man had been to obey the commands of a forward and bold young woman, one of the sort to whom Hamlet would have said, Get thee to a nunnery. Such invitations are better ignored. Though it is difficult for the average young man to resist the temptation of being courted and flattered, and of seeking the society of girls to administer these pleasant attentions. But if their standard is a high one, they would say to themselves, What should I like another fellow to do, supposing the girl was my sister? Almost always he mentally adds, God forbid. This clears up the question for him at once. If he is high-minded and honourable, he keeps away. If he is unscrupulous and self-indulgent, he meets the girl and lets the acquaintanceship drift onto dangerous ground. Such girls as these can never tell if a man whose past and present and surrounding circumstances are unknown to her is a scoundrel or otherwise. Fortunately, the code of manners obtaining amongst the educated and well-brought-up forbids all such indiscriminate acquaintance-making. Girls who stoop to it are usually those who have failed to secure attention in their own circle and belong, as a rule, to the sort of girl who marries a groom or runs away with a good-looking footman. A young man once asked me if it would be etiquette to offer an unknown lady an umbrella in the street, supposing she stood in need of one. I replied, no lady would accept the offer from a stranger, and the other sort of person might never return the umbrella. In large towns, women of breeding soon learn to view casual attentions from well-dressed men with the deepest distrust. They would suffer any amount of inconvenience, rather than accept a favour from a stranger, knowing that so many men make it their amusement to prowl about the streets, looking after pretty faces and graceful figures, and forcing their attentions on the owners. Contemptible curs they are, whether young or old, and they are of all ages. Very young girls have sometimes extremely unpleasant experiences with such men, not only in the streets, but in omnibuses, trams and trains, cultivating a gentlemanly exterior. They can yet never be gentlemen, and a good, pure woman finds something hateful in the look of their eyes, the whole expression of their faces. It cannot be denied, however, that there is a corresponding class of women and girls who make promiscuous male acquaintances in the streets, and a young man learns to distinguish these from respectable members of the community almost as soon as a young girl learns to dread and fear the prowling man. The existence of such a state of things makes self-respecting women most careful to accept no advances from a stranger, and the true gentleman, understanding this, refrains from offers of assistance that he would gladly make were society so constituted as to be free from such pests as the above. In passing ladies in the promenade, in the street or park, if a man chanced to be smoking, he always takes his cigar from his mouth, replacing it when the lady or ladies have passed on. In the crowded streets of great cities, this, if carried out in full entirety, would be too much. Therefore it is observed only with reference to such ladies as pass the smoker quite closely. I know he is a gentleman, said a girl once of a good-looking young fellow whose appearance had pleased her. I know he is a gentleman, for he stopped smoking directly he saw us. 
it is in the observance of little things of this kind that one shows clearly one's breeding or lack of it. When a young man is walking with a lady and happens to meet another lady with whom he is on more intimate terms than with his companion, he must ask pardon of the latter if he should stop to speak. Excuse me for one moment, he would say, and his companion, if a gentlewoman, would walk some yards on, and then slowly stroll along until he joined her again. The strict rule is that when walking of a lady, a man should never leave her side. Suppose a young man were to meet his mother or sister while he was in the company of a lady unknown to them, he must not introduce her to them or them to her without having previously obtained special permission on both sides. There are young men who make acquaintance with girls in a lower walk of life than their own. It would be an insult to mother or sister to introduce a milliner's apprentice or an assistant in a shop, or in fact any one whom he had picked up without a regular introduction. No respectable young woman would walk with or talk with any man to whom she had not had a proper introduction. The inference is that those who do so are not respectable and must not therefore be introduced to those who are. The old rule was that when a gentleman stopped to speak to a lady in the street, he walked a little way with her in the direction in which she had been going. But now this is less observed than it used to be. The lady herself, if she wishes the conversation to be a short one, stops at once, knowing that it would be easier for a man to terminate in these circumstances than if he were sauntering by her side. End of chapter 2 Recording by Ruth